When I was deciding what I wanted to preach today, I, uh, I kept coming back to the Gospel of John. You know, over the last few years, I've gotten really interested in the Gospel of John and how it was interpreted among the first couple centuries of the church. It, uh, ever since the Scriptures were written down, it was circulated and recognized as one of the most profound books in the Christian canon. In fact, it was so widely cited in early Christian literature that some scholars for a very long time suggested that there could have even been this early community or school of John that focused specifically on interpreting the teachings of John and passing those on. As an example of this, one of the earliest and most influential theologians in Christian history, once called the Gospels the first fruits of the Scripture, and John the first fruits of the Gospels. I can think of no better way to begin our time together than a quote that I found during my study from an English bishop named J.C. Ryle. He wrote about this passage a few hundred years ago, and he begins his reflections on this text by saying this. It has been said that there are some passages in Scripture which deserve to be printed in letters of gold. Of such passages, the verses before us form one. They contain one of those wide, full, free invitations to mankind which make the gospel of Christ so eminently the good news of God. I mean, what a quote, right? The verses before us today sum up the overarching message of this important book of the Bible. They reiterate the free gift of the gospel, reminding us that salvation is offered to any and all who believe in Jesus Christ, and that this is made possible precisely because the Son of God Himself took on flesh and dwelled among us. It's a fairly straightforward passage. There's actually only two things that happen, and it's only three verses. You can see the two things that we're going to be covering today in the outline of your bulletin. The first thing we see is that Jesus makes a declaration. As we will see, Jesus talks about our problem and its solution, and he does this by referring us back to the Scriptures. The second thing that happens is that John offers an interpretation. After remembering what Jesus had taught, John explicitly tells us what Jesus meant by these words. So he kind of did the preaching job for me, right? At the end of it all, I hope to leave you with a big picture reality, one overarching takeaway, and that is this, the Christian gospel is deeply triune. Though this free gift of salvation is obtained through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it is foremost a joint operation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into a little bit of background info that will help us make sense of this story, uh, and then we will look at the text. Pray along with me, please. God, you are merciful to us. Father, we confess that knowing you is a profound task that we are inadequate and unworthy to do on our own power. But we thank you for sending your Son to us so that you would make yourself known to us. We thank you for sending your spirit so that we may believe and receive the spirit of life as we seek to walk in conformity to your word alongside one another. I pray that our time together this morning would not be futile, that it would not be a distraction, 
uh, but instead that we would receive the word, the Christian gospel passed down from generation to generation faithfully through the scriptures. Help us not be distracted or weary this morning, but instead make your character and your ways known to us. It is in your son's name I pray, amen. So a little earlier in the the chapter, in John 7, Jesus commands his brothers to go up to the festival of tabernacles. Your Bible might call this the festival of booths, the festival of shelters. They all carry the same basic meaning. It was a prominent Jewish festival. It was one of three of the year that all Jewish men were required to participate in. It got its name from instructions given to the Israelites by God in Leviticus 23. There, God institutes a festival week in which a series of tabernacles or shelters or booths would be constructed and lived in for seven days. It was to remind God's people of the way that He had protected them in the wilderness. But by the time period that Jesus lived in, this had turned into a much more exorbitant affair. A complicated water-pouring ritual had actually become one of the most central features of this festival. Priests would go down to a river, they would fill a, holy, or a, a golden vessel with water and carry it to the temple. The water would then be transferred into silver bowls, and they would pour it onto the altar along with a silver bowl of wine, sacrificing it before God. It was supposed to remind the people of God's providence of the water from the rock when Moses strikes it with a staff and they are provided water in the wilderness. After these seven days, the people would take one final feast day to Sabbath to rest. They would offer burnt offerings and they would remember and reflect on everything they had done and seen throughout the week. This is when our text today takes place, an important annual celebration of God's people to remember God's protection and providence while reflecting on what the future Messiah would bring. After commanding his brothers to go to the festival, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem in secret. He tells them that he's staying back, but he actually goes up there secretly. Nobody realizes he's in the city. He's already started to ruffle some feathers among the Jewish elites, and so the people are divided over the fact that he didn't show up for this very important festival. He emerges halfway through the week, And he begins to teach with authority in the temple. After a few days of back and forth, the Pharisees and chief priests finally decide that they're going to try to send some servants to arrest Jesus. We actually see this several times in Jesus' ministry, right? Where they try to capture him, but the time had not yet come for Jesus to be delivered. And so uh, they fail for whatever reason. Um, it, It happens yet again in the Feast of Tabernacles story. But this brings us to the moment that Jesus makes his declaration today. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. This final day was, remember, the eighth day, a day of rest. There were no more water rituals taking place. After seven mornings of following this lengthy journey of a golden bowl of water from a river to the altar of the temple, there is no more water. Instead, it's quiet. It would have been noticeable, right? If you're doing something every morning for a week and suddenly you stop, 
you're going to recognize that you're not doing that thing anymore. So it only seems fitting that on this day, after all the water had disappeared, that Jesus makes the statement, if anyone is thirsty. This was the problem of Israel. They were awaiting a Messiah. They were thirsty. This imagery would have resonated deeply, not just because they've witnessed it throughout the week, but because of the background that all these rituals were made out of. A lot of these rituals have their roots in Old Testament prophecies or texts, and this water ceremony in particular seems to have been instituted in response to a handful of prophetic texts. Uh, I'll cover two of those. The first is Ezekiel 47. Here, Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple with water flowing out of it in every direction. There is life wherever the water goes. Ezekiel promises that on that day, all the trees providing food will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. And each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for eating and their leaves for healing. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, promises flourishing for the land and prosperity for God's people. The second Old Testament context for this water ritual that Jesus is speaking uh, as sort of a foil against is Isaiah 44, where we read this. Now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take on the name of Israel. Ezekiel and Isaiah had promised Israel's future blessings by using this language of water and thirst, right? There would one day be a Messiah who would quench the thirst of the land. And so over the years, Israel followed this ceremony to remind themselves that they were, they were waiting on a coming Messiah who would bring with him the future promises of God. But it would be negligent to think that they were only awaiting a day when God would provide the land with water or cover dry grounds with water so that they would bear fruit. Notice the other feature of the text in Isaiah 44. Isaiah says this, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and then what? I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. Israel awaited a day of prosperity, yes, but they were also awaiting a day that God would give them His very Spirit, the day of eternal life. Yes, the water ritual was a promise of agricultural blessing, but it was really just a symbol for what it truly was about at its core. This was about a promise that one day the entire nation of Israel would have their spiritual thirst quenched and would receive the gift of life through God's Spirit. Notice how Jesus flips the script on this imagery. I know it's a lot of background info to take in, but I think that it's relevant for really understanding what Jesus is trying to do by standing up and saying this in the middle of such an important time. 
Instead of promising that it's just for the descendants of Jacob or just for the people of Israel, Jesus says this, if anyone thirsts. In doing so, Jesus is functionally saying that anyone who thirsts spiritually can be the heirs of those promises found in Ezekiel and Isaiah. To read in between the lines a little bit, this means it can be applied to us. I challenge you all, every one of you, to reflect on this. What are you thirsting for? We are all thirsting for something, but we are not all thirsting for the right thing. We see this in the culture around us. We may not carry water and golden pitchers to an altar very often. Most of us probably never. But how often do we thirst for affirmation of our peers? How many of us thirst to be esteemed or to find pleasure or to be wealthy? Some of these things spring from good motives. I'm not trying to say it's a sin to be recognized for working hard or that it's sinful to enjoy the good blessings of God. But the thirst for these things should never be greater than our thirst for the presence of God and the renewal of His people. There are good thirsts and there are bad thirsts, but there's only one that is above all the others, and that is the spiritual thirst for salvation from sin. Israel actually knew this already. It's why Jesus was finally telling people who He was in a very public way by this point in His earthly ministry. Israel had expected a Messiah to come, and they truly believed that he would. But once he revealed himself, they failed to recognize him. At least Israel knew they needed a Savior. So many of us, we don't even often know the depth of our own sin or the depth of our need. We're like travelers in a desert, tricked by a mirage of a lake down the road, trying to convince ourselves that we actually don't need to turn to God to quench our spiritual thirst, that we can actually just go to whatever lies ahead. But we never get there. All the while, we are spiritually dehydrated. J.C. Ryle, who I quoted at the beginning of this sermon, says this, Happy are those who know something by experience of spiritual thirst. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we are not in the way to be saved. The very first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. The sense of sin, which sometimes alarms a man and makes him think his own case desperate, is a good sign. It is, in fact, a symptom of spiritual life. So, we've been confronted with this problem We've seen that it isn't just a problem for Israel, but it's actually a problem for anyone and everyone. But what's the solution Jesus gives? Let him come to me and drink. Jesus, standing before the people of Jerusalem, says that he is the source of true water that satisfies our need for God's presence. Try to imagine, if you can, how that would have sounded. Knowing the importance of this festival the importance of a coming future Messiah, all the promises that were supposed to lie ahead for your ancestors or the ones that were to come, and then a man who has been causing trouble among religious leaders stands up and says that all of this is actually about him. In this moment, Christ is publicly telling all of Israel that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. God's promise to dwell with them 
This isn't the first time that Jesus has said something similar using the same imagery in his ministry. Just a few chapters ago in John 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well and asks her for a drink. You can turn to John 4 uh, if you so wish. I'm not going to read an extensive amount from it, but I do want you to sort of skim the passage as I talk through a couple themes in it. You'll notice that Jesus promises in verse 10 that he will give the woman living water. The same thing that Jesus promises those in the temple in chapter 7. Then, after the woman pushes back on this promise, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 13. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But everyone who drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Like he says in the temple during festival week, he suggests to the woman at the well that he is the source from which living water comes. Jesus, the one who comes to reveal the sin of the world, actually brings us the solution to the sin of the world, his own life, his presence. It's like John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. John 1.14 is actually a fascinating verse in particular, and one of the most important features of it, I think, is missing in most of our translations. The word that your Bible likely translates as the word became flesh and dwelled among us is eskenosin. Eskenosin. It's a verb that literally translates to the idea of pitching one's tent or to tabernacle. It would be more accurate or more exact to translate John 1.14 as saying, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Think about that in light of what we've seen so far. For generations, the people of God had to build tabernacles each year to remember that the future promises of God would someday come to them. They would live in them for a week. It was almost certainly unpleasant. If I'm sweating right now, imagine how much more I'd be sweating living in a tabernacle all week, right? But they one day were just hoping to be dwelling in the presence of God. But through the incarnate Christ, God himself tabernacles with us, taking on our likeness. Instead of having to build tabernacles and to carry water through the city to sacrifice to God, God himself actually tabernacles with us and brings living water with him. What a mercy this is for our thirsty and tired hearts, that we do not have a distant and indifferent God, but a God who is interested in the lives of his people so much that he quite literally has skin in the game. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon points out that this is likely the final time Jesus will see most of these people. It's not too long before Jesus is arrested and crucified. And in fact, John even mentioned several times, like we said, that the authorities were already trying to find a way to seize him and kill him. Drawing attention to Jesus' imminent death, Spurgeon says this, I think it's noteworthy that when the master had gathered up all the forces of his soul and his whole spirit was moved with intense anxiety for the good of men, then he especially preached the gospel of salvation. At another time, he would teach them deeper doctrine, or a truth of wider range, 
for his ministry dealt with many things for edification and holiness. But now, on this last day, he seems to put other matters on one side, and his one object is to win thirsty souls to come to him and drink. When you find yourself in a place of spiritual thirst, come to Jesus and drink. This is the simple gospel message, and it's the message of Jesus' words at the Feast of Tabernacles. In the man, Jesus Christ, God himself tabernacled among us and brought with him living water that only he can supply. Drink deeply from this well, and you shall live. There's one more feature in what Jesus says that interests me. Jesus ends his declaration with this sentence. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Now, very commonly throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus would go around teaching and he would say something that was contradictory or not necessarily contradictory, I guess, fulfilling the Old Testament, right? And then the Jewish authorities would challenge him and he would say, well, does the scriptures not say, right? He would refer them back to the text that they knew, that they were familiar with. But if you were to sit down and closely read the entirety of the Old Testament, first off, I would, I would say good job. I'm sure a lot of us aren't doing that. Second off, you would never find this sentence anywhere in the Old Testament. You might be a little confused because Jesus says, as the Scripture has said, X, Y, Z, but you never find it. So what's happening here? Well, we've already seen a few references to water and thirst, and I think they're likely forming a similar backdrop to what Jesus is saying here. But I think that instead of quoting one single specific passage, Jesus intentionally draws on these common cultural images as a whole. This effectively shows that he is not merely the fulfillment of one single prophecy, but rather is the one whom the entire Bible has always been talking about. Jesus is the meta-narrative of the entire Bible. Jesus is God himself dwelling among us, the presence of God from Isaiah 44. Jesus is the rock who provides water in the wilderness of Numbers 20. Jesus is the true temple out of whom living water flows from Jerusalem, prophesied about in Zechariah 14. Jesus is the true source of living water tabernacling among us, seen throughout John's gospel. But not only does he show how he himself is the fulfillment of these things, he also points towards the Spirit's work in the believer after Jesus' ascension, when he is no longer with his disciples. Notice in verse 38 that it is the believer who has living water flowing from him. Continue with me in verse 39, where John interprets this for us. He, that is Jesus, said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is one of the handful of places in the Bible where the human author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, actually tells us what the passage means. So we don't have to have any doubt that by this living water, Jesus is referring to the sending of the Spirit, whom the believers would receive after the glorification of Christ. Similar language about salvation being drinking from the Spirit is found elsewhere. If you recall the day of Pentecost, the Jews mocked the earliest Christians by accusing them of being drunk on new wine. 
But Peter says they are not drunk. Instead, they've had the Spirit poured out on them. We see similar imagery again when Paul condemns drunkenness in Ephesians 5, contrasting it with being filled with the Spirit. The New Testament contrasts the lifestyle of sin embodied by drunkenness with the lifestyle of righteousness embodied by drinking from the living water. Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are baptized by one spirit into one body and that we are given one spirit to drink. The unity of the church is grounded in our common source. We flow from one spring, the spring of life, the Holy Spirit. Though Jesus makes a declaration that he himself is the source of salvation and then says that one day those who believe in him will receive this living water, He does not work alone. Jesus instead highlights that salvation is a Trinitarian co-operation. Jesus makes a Trinitarian promise in this text. Now, there's a lot of theology tied up in these couple verses, and we've already spent plenty of time in the text this morning. What I really want to draw out is just the idea that what Jesus says and the way that John reads it gives the gospel a distinctly Trinitarian shape. A lot of us have this idea that the inner life of God and talking about the Trinity is something that we should reserve for classrooms. Some have suggested that since we actually never find the word Trinity in the Bible, that it must have been something that Christians thought about later, right? They invented it after after the Scriptures were written, uh, retroactively looking at different things, trying to explain contradictions, Right? Some, have, some have suggested that. But clearly, John's gospel is discussing it. It shows us that this doctrine is immediately relevant for the daily life of every single one of us. The promises of God are grounded in God's own revealing as the Son and the sending of the Spirit. And Jesus himself teaches it in his earthly ministry. In John 7, Jesus is promising those who hear them that someday soon, when He is gone, when He has departed this earth, the Spirit would be sent in a unique and a special way to continue the divine mission of God to save His people. We know that the Spirit, both eternal and divine, was already at work before this moment. He'd been at work since Genesis 1, right? The Spirit was hovering out over the waters, As Augustine asked in his treatise on the Trinity, if Jesus was saying that the Spirit wasn't existing at all, with whom were the prophets prophesying in the name of? Or, relatedly, with whom was John the Baptist filled in the womb? Instead, the biblical evidence is clear that Jesus is just pointing toward a future uh, event or time when the Spirit would be poured out on God's people in a unique way, which is exactly what we see happen in the book of Acts as the gospel advances across the ancient world. One of the clearest places where Jesus teaches on the Spirit's work is John 15 and 16. I'm going to read several verses beginning in 1526, and then I'll jump ahead to 16.5. Jesus says this in John 15, When the Counselor comes, I will send to you from the Father, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. But now I am going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? 
Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine, and this is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Now, there's certainly more than just these, but Jesus gives a handful of functions of the Spirit's work. He says that it will convict, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that he will guide the church in the truth, that he will speak what he hears, glorifying Christ by speaking this truth to Christ's people. Fundamentally, Jesus tells us that the work of the Spirit is an extension of the work of the Son, which is itself an extension of the work he was sent to accomplish from the Father. He guides Christ's followers in the truth to become more like the Father. He speaks for the purpose of glorifying Christ and the Father's plan of salvation for the world. We refer to this idea as the doctrine of inseparable operations, that there isn't an act of God that one divine person does from, apart from the others. Sure, there is a certain fittingness to some of these acts. The Father isn't the one who takes on flesh, and uh, the Son doesn't indwell the believer, but instead the Spirit does. But all three operate inseparably in each of these acts. If this is a confusing idea for you, there's a, a couple phrases from church history that I found really helpful for understanding this idea. In the mid to late 300s, there was a big controversy over the doctrine of the Trinity. It's how we got the Nicene Creed. A lot of us may not know that one because, you know, we're good Baptists and we have no creed but the Bible. But it's the one that says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, etc. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. You'd get really bored and glazed over by now. But one of the bishops at this council was named Gregory of Nyssa. And he wrote a short treatise uh, called On Not Three Gods, in which he tries to explain to his opponent that the doctrine of the Trinity is not the same thing as believing in three gods. And I really like the words that Nyssa uses. It, it really helped me wrap my mind around this idea of, of the Trinitarian persons working in all things together. He says that there is nothing the Father does that the Son does not also work conjointly. Or, similarly, that the Son has no special operation apart from the Father. We can really say that salvation is a co-operation, and put a hyphen after the co in order to get the real sense of what we mean by that. In John 5, Jesus talks about that the Son does nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, the Son does likewise. 1 Corinthians 8 says that for Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. There's one Lord Jesus Christ through whom 
are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16 talks about how all things were created through the Son and for the Son. The baptism of Jesus, we see the Spirit descend like a dove as the Father speaks His blessing upon His Son. And in 1 Corinthians 12, the work of the Spirit is put on the same level as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Father. That there are different gifts, but one Spirit, different ministries, but one Lord, different activities, but one God. Everything God accomplishes originates in the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is perfected by the Spirit. It isn't a cooperation in the sense that each person does a third of the work. Instead, it's a cooperation in which all three persons fully participate. This is the beauty of Jesus' words in John 7, that they show a full picture of our God-saving work, and they do so in distinctly Trinitarian fashion. To conclude then, we have seen this morning God's gift of living water. We are a thirsty people, but God has provided a way. The Father sent the Son who tabernacles among us so that after His glorification, the Spirit could live within us. How does this land with you? Do you thirst for God or are you too preoccupied with your own busyness, that you haven't slowed down enough to recognize your need for a Savior. Like the image of the man longing for a mirage that never comes in the distance, in the desert, are you simply hoping to bide enough time to put off your repentance? Are you willing to recognize your thirst and drink deeply from the well of Jesus? As one preacher has said it, the worst of all states of our soul is to be without feeling or concern about eternity, to never thirst at all. The path to salvation laid out before us is easy. Jesus promises rest for our weary souls. But it is one thing to attend Christ's church, to talk to Christ's ministers, or to participate in Christ's ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, while it is quite another to come to Christ himself. Jesus calls the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness blessed. And this is good news if you know your need of a Savior. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Uh, I'm going to ask one of our elders to come up and pray as I prepare to close us in song this morning, uh, and then we will stand uh, and sing together. Um, we do have a, a response room sort of right out these doors to the right. If you uh, do recognize your thirst, your need of a Savior, uh, and you would like to talk to somebody about that, um, one of our elders and their wife will be back there to, to speak with you.